Welcome to the I-29 Moo U Dairy podcast. I-29 Moo University is a consortium of land-grant universities in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Welcome to another podcast of I-29 Moo University. I'm Kim Clark, and today I'm joined by Fred Hall, Extension Dairy Specialist uh, in Northwest Iowa, and Jim Salfer, Regional Dairy Educator from the University of Minnesota. And on today's podcast, we are talking about milking robots. Welcome, Kim. It's nice to see everybody again. It's always fun to have the discussion with us, uh, and today's topic is pretty exciting. Yeah, there's a lot of growth in robots, and so it'd be fun to talk about. I think there's a lot of, it's a lot of buzz in the industry right around. It's just an interesting topic to talk about. It is an interesting topic, and we're starting to see more robots go online in the industry too. And I think one of the interesting parts, um, as I think about the milking robot, one thing that's in my mind is 60 cows max per robot. And are we still seeing that today? Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've done a number of surveys, and I think that was probably true maybe 10 years ago, but for some, uh, it, but that really number has been a moving target, I think, for probably multiple reasons. Number one, the robots have all gotten better. I mean, over time, they've just really improved, the, especially the cameras and the lasers from an attaching standpoint. The other thing I think, our barn design's gotten better, and we've got better cows. You know, 60 cows per robot might be a good target. If you're just in for the first couple of years, but as time goes on, I think you'll be selecting more for cows that are really good robot cows. So they come in, they stand for robot attachment, and they just have the right udder conformation. And so I think over time, um, most of the farms I work with here that achieve a lot of milk per robot, they're probably looking more in the 63, most of them are maybe 62 to 67. There's obviously some outside of that range, but I think, and there's some that will say 60 is my maximum number. A lot of those are farms that uh, don't want to spend a lot of time in the barn. You know, they kind of want the robot to run themselves. So as you push that number up, you're going to have to spend more time in the barn. You're going to have to make sure the robots work well. You're probably going to have a few more fetch cows in a free flow system. So it depends on a little bit your system. But um, I think long term uh, for people that want to get a lot of milk per robot, we're going to be a little bit higher than that 60 cows per robot. As I get in so many discussions with robot or you get uses groups of robot and they start arguing about oh, my cows milk 2.8 times a day my milk 2.9 my milk 3.1 said you guys that number is an absolutely irrelevant number it means nothing what matters is you get your early lactation cows milked a lot of times and your late lactation cows milk not so many times and let the average be what it is. I'm not sure targeting an average is a right number to target. And actually, we have some pretty interesting data from our latest research study. I'll probably talk about a little bit, but um, we had, so we broke it down by cows per robot. And in our free fall barns, we had our, our highest number of cows per robot were 66 to 70. Nobody would think you should ever run 70 cows per robot. Nobody. How is milk production impacted when 70 cows are going through that robot? That is the group with the highest average milk production per cow. No kidding. The so average 86 pounds. 86 pounds. And is that Holsteins? Yeah, those are Holsteins. Yeah, they're all Holsteins. 
So if we've always heard, or I've always heard 60 cows per yep. bot max, it can't handle anymore. What's the difference? You're not going to do that for your first year, first two or three years. Some of these guys have been seven or eight years. So you kind of get the right cows. And a lot of it is getting your milking permission settings up right. So you're really getting these cows milked at the right time. There's a farm in Wisconsin I work with. I'm not sure his number is correct, but his goal is to average 40 pounds of milk every time a cow comes into the robot. And he's within a half a pound of that all the time. I said, how did you come up with 40? And his argument is, that's when I started cows leaking. When they had 40 pounds of milk in their udder, they leaked. So that's his goal. So I think part of his milk and permission settings, part of it is having the right cows, you know, fast milking cows that adapt to robots. So there's a lot of reasons. And so I'm not sure if you're in two or three years, that should be your target. But I think as you get in longer, the other thing is the newer robots are much better. If you look at the new robots, they attach faster, the lasers are better. So I think we're going to have these, I think I think we're going to see robots really handling 65 to 70 cows pretty common in the future. So yeah, people are always surprised when I say that, you know, because that's what they're saying. What really happened, that's why I think it's irrelevant because we also broke that down by milkings per cow per day. The highest number of milkings per cow per day was 55 to 60 cows. They averaged almost three milkings per cow per day, and they averaged 84 pounds of milk. Okay, so pretty close. I mean, really, milk is statistically, there's no difference. But the real difference is free time. Those cows, those farms that uh, ran a lot more cows, their free time really dropped. You know, the robot companies recommend 10%. The 55 to 60 averaged 11. But these guys that were 65 to 70, they averaged about 8% free time. So these guys squeezed down free time. So you're going to have a few more fetch cows under that situation in a free flow system. We actually had guided flow barns that averaged almost 80 cows per robot wow. and wow. averaged 85 pounds of milk per cow. So, Jim, let's kind of review the situations in those successful barns. Is it more likely that they're a barn built for the robot, or is this one that was retrofitted? Well, one of our really good robot barns is a retrofit, but it's also retrofitted really well, and it's a sand-bedded, pretty modern freestyle barn. I mean, it's about 15 years old, probably maybe 20 years old, but they completely retrofitted it, uh, tore out mattresses, put in sand, and they put the robot boxes in the middle of the pens like you should. So I think retrofits can work if you do it correctly, but Fred, typically these are new barns. I mean, typically the real high performing barns are new barns, but you probably, our, our economic models will show that with a retrofit, you don't need to get as much milk per cow to pay for it because you don't, you have the barn already. So that's partly a trade-off. Uh, the other thing I think you're going to see like this uh, guided flow barn that had really high, high production per cow and high number of cows per robot, they cheat. What I mean by cheating is they have a dual system. They have a parlor milking 700 cows. They have a robot barn milking about 600 cows. And so I think we're going to see more of those dual systems, especially in our big dairies, where you're going to have to hire labor anyway. If they have a really good parlor, I think they're going to keep their parlor going. And this dairy over in Wisconsin, they run that eight robot robot barn, excluding feeding because the cows feed the same. But I said, how much labor does it take to run that barn? Said 15 hours of labor a day. That's all they, they can run. Um, let's see, eight times seven, 550 cows 
with 15 hours of labor a day. And that's breeding, scraping, taking care of robots. There aren't many fresh cows because it's a guided flow. That does not include feeding. But everything else is 15 total hours of labor a day. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Oh, it's unbelievable. So I think we're going to see some bigger farms that are thinking about that, where their next barn will be a robot barn. They said, I, I'm, you know, part of that is labor, but they're going to hire some labor. And I think there'll be some, some will close down their parlors, but, I, but it's easy to run an efficient robot barn when you can move any cow that doesn't adapt to robots to a parlor right? They freshen them in the parlor. They milk them for the first few weeks in the parlor until they get up and they're feeling good and they're doing well. And then you move those best robot cows to the robot barn. And so, you know, it's it's cheating, but it's not cheating. It's a really way to make your entire dairy system really efficient. So are they peaking them in the parlor? And once they've attained their peak, then moving them? No, it's usually when they're feeling good. Usually it's maybe two weeks to a month. So they're up and they know they don't have a temp and they're moving around well and, you know, they're just feeling well. Then they'll move them to the robot barn and they'll try to have them peak there because they can milk more. I mean, this, this, these people milk 3X in their parlor, but they, you know, they'll move them over. You know, so some of that's pre-training heifers. It's, it, it is actually, it generates a lot of discussion when you tell farms that. And I'm not sure 70 is the right number. I think that really varies from farm to farm. If you talk to the guys that are up at that number, if they're free flow, they're going to have more fetch cows. The other big disadvantage of running a lot of cows per robot and squeezing down free time, if something breaks you have really got to get that fixed right away because if you don't, you really get backed up. Because So there's some farms that are pretty big cash crop farmers or something where they just don't have the labor there all the time where they'll say, I don't want to run my free time that low and I want, don't want that many cows. So I think that a lot of that's a personal preference. I'm sure not promoting that. I'm just saying there are farms that are doing it if you so desire to do that. Gosh, I'm still trying to process the 70 cows through a robot, thinking about everything that has to align to get that many animals through. So not only on the robot side, but that's going to adjust multiple things down the line, right? So your feeding and your nutrition, how is your nutrition going to change? I don't know if that's, that's a change too much. A big key is to have the right cows in there. You've got to have cows that milk fast, that stand for attachment, that go through well, you know, that's probably the biggest factor. And then you really got to, you got to have a well-designed barn. Back to Fred, you've got to have a well-designed barn that cows can really get easy access to the robot. So you can't, and you know, those are really well-designed barns. What's that barn design look like? Well, usually the robot boxes are in the middle of the bar, middle of the pen. They're not way on one end of the pen, just because then it's a little easier for cows to come from both ends and get to them. So those are usually those kind of barns. My favorite robot barn design is robots in the middle of the barn in pens and perimeter feeding. I mean, I, most of the new barns tend to be that way now. I mean, that's not Jim's secret design goodness sakes that's the way <laughs> most of the bigger the bigger brand new turnkey robot barns are it's where the robot boxes are in the middle and with retrofits that's hard because most of them are getting re- retrofitted into drive-through barns with the feed lanes in the middle but one of our best barns is that way and that's the one where the robots are in the pan they've got four robots two four six robots 
two in each pen and that works well for them. So I, th I think you can make retrofits work and I think you can get really high production out of ret retrofits where retrofits hurt, I think is labor efficiency. It's really hard to design them where you don't have a little higher labor, probably more fetch cows. Besides labor efficiency, what's the greatest challenge with retrofitting a barn? That's a good question. Probably trying. The other thing that's kind of tricky is if you want separation pens, where do you put them? You know, it's, it's easy to design a brand new barn where you're going to put retrofit or separation pens behind the robot. Well, here that might not work or you need to add on to your barn. So one of the hardest is if you want some of those amenities like separation pens, that's trickier and maybe a little harder to do uh, in a retrofit. And where to put the robots? Do you put them on the side of the barn? If you can't put them in the middle of the pens, do you put them on the side of the barn? Do you add on, put them on the end of the barn? Uh, those are always a little bit harder. And it's just, it's harder to design the separation pens or kind of that area in front of the robot with your fetch pens. It's hard to really sometimes get those designed really well in a, in a retrofit facility. So what have you got? Do you work a lot with robot? You do you have many in Nebraska? I want you guys to contribute. I don't want to be all the talking in this podcast. So I want your opinions. So we have three robots. I have to think now. Three robots that are up and running. A fourth one that I know is planned for sure and possibly two additional ones that are in the producers are looking strongly at robots. Um, but we actually, our third one just went online and that one is north central, northeast Nebraska. Um, but they have some brown Swiss that they're actually running through robots, which oh. I hadn't seen that before. Our other two ro milking robot barns are Holsteins, and they really like them a lot. And actually, I misspoke. We have four robot farms with the fourth that just came on the line. In the last are the, how are the Swiss going through? We've got one here that's all Swiss and they seem really happy. Jerseys are the breed that you hear. They're just so much more active. So they'll just talk about visits being so high with their jerseys. And of course, you have a few more issues with an old jersey with a deep butter, you know, because they tend to be a little short-legged anyway. But you, do, you will hear about jerseys just being so much more active with really good visits. And I don't know if that's good because, you know, they tend to be, they, they just tend to be more active. Yeah, I think part of that activity is the curiosity that comes along yeah. with those jerseys, too. So there's a big show herd. You may be known, big registered herd, a Guernsey herd over in Wisconsin that has robots. They were, do you know them, Fred? I'm trying to think of the name. I've been there. But when they expanded to robots, they got two robots and then they they bought some Holsteins because they couldn't find enough Guernseys. And they seem to get along fine and do well together which I thought maybe the Holsteins would be a little too aggressive for the Guernseys, but boy, they, was, they did very well. And they prefer their Guernseys. They really like them, but their Guernseys were doing really well. You know, we're talking about breed differences, and I think that kind of leads us to the other shape. You know, the deep-headed older jersey is problematic, but by the same token, you know, 20 years ago, we were grousing the rear teats too far apart, well, now we've got a lot of cows that the rear teats are too close together, and that's problematic for a robot. Are you seeing a shift in culling or the look of the other gym? Yeah, there's a couple of ways people are doing it. Some of the robots will actually attach to the opposite quarter. Um, the other thing people will do is 
they will make a conscious decision to not allow those cows to come in very often, especially in later lactation where those teats are constantly crossed because then the robot will spend all this time trying to attach and kick her out. So what they'll say is, I'm not, I'm only going to milk this cow one and a half times a day. I'm not going to milk her till she gets this much milk in her udder to try and get those back teats spread out. So it has a little easier time attaching, but you will see too, once in a while people call them, but the robots are amazingly good at identifying and attaching. It's sometimes a time issue. Sometimes it doesn't, it takes a lot longer than you'd like. But if you watch these new robots with the lasers and the the newer cameras, they, not that cross teats aren't a challenge, but the robots can attach to a lot more unusual shaped teats than you'd think. Maybe almost a bigger issue is kind of reverse tilt to the udder where you've got that four udder lower and there's these high, small back teats because the, the lasers and the robots or the lasers and the cameras can't find them. They just can't see those back teats to attach. Are you seeing any difference in the, the machinery? We looked at a galaxy over there in eastern Iowa a couple of weeks ago and a little different look to it, but I think we're seeing some changes in the machinery of the robot versus what we saw 10, 12 years ago, aren't we, Jim? Yeah, I think all the robots are getting better. The two dominant players, of course, are D. Lavelle and Lely. They're the first ones in. Um, you've got AMS Galaxy, of course, with the one arm and the two boxes kind of side by side. We've got a couple of them here. And I think the ones I've seen have seemed to work fine. You've got Gia and their, of course, their claim to fame or what they're really trying to accomplish is a one attach system. So it attaches and then all of the prep, all of the milking and the pulse tipping is all in that one attach unit. There are some of those around. There's actually a couple large rotaries and they're really the they're really the company that's gone after that large dairy from a rotary standpoint. Obviously, the other companies want large dairies, but they're really in their box robot system. And then you've got Bomatic, which has been coming in more recently. There really are not a lot of Bomatic systems right now, so I'm not that familiar with them. But they make a, a one box and also a two box system. So all of the you know all the robot companies and they all I guess the two I'm by far the most familiar with because all of our research has been done with is uh, the De Lavelles and the Lalies. But the other ones that I've seen overall they seem to work fairly well. It was impressive to see that galaxy with that single arm. You know, it just reminded me of the old days in Detroit. You know, when I would would tour those. That's the arm that they were using. Yeah, and that's exactly what they're they're saying. This is a standard robotic arm. And so the cost is to repair them is going to be a lot cheaper. There's a, I don't know if they said there's a lots of these around the world. And so that's what they've really tried to do is standardize these robot, at least the, the robotic part of it, to say, let's build a, a robot where the robot part is really standard and then repairs will be less and there'll be a lot of them around and that'll help keep the cost down, especially the repair cost down. So that's really what they've tried to accomplish with their robot versus a lot of specialized parts. That kind of leads me into my next question. As we're seeing some age on these units, uh, what are we seeing on the trend for repairs and maintenance? And then follow up, are we seeing some pretty good resale values on them? 
You know, that's a good question, Fred. Um, you know, well, we did a survey, and this was kind of a national survey, so we just asked producers about their major repairs. You know, so we've tried to collect that, and maybe not surprisingly, repairs start out pretty low the first few years, especially because most of them are under warranty, and then over time, those repairs tend to go up. And so I tell producers, you know, you probably need to figure ten to 12000 per robot for repairs, knowing that's probably fair high for the first couple of years. The other thing you've got to kind of think about is robot repairs tend to be a little bit lumpy. What I mean by that is, you know, you won't have any repairs for a year or two. Well, then an air compressor will go out. Well, that might be several thousand dollars or uh, lasers go out. But one thing I'll really give the robot companies credit for over the last couple of years, I think that's been one of the things they've tried to work on really hard, making more retrofit parts, uh, repurposing these parts, trying to keep trying to design the robots so there aren't as many repair costs. So they share more equipment between multiple robots. And so I think overall, you know, repair costs, I think obviously are a concern. Uh, the other way to keep repair costs down, train somebody on your farm to do the repairs. And I think you're going to see that again, especially on larger farms. They're going to kind of have one or two people that are really trained well, and they're going to specialize in repairs. So when you get these calls, you won't have to have a service call. That does a couple of things. Um, it helps keep your robot up and going so you don't have to wait for the dealer to come there, especially if you're uh, quite a ways from a dealer. Um, the other thing it really does is help keep your costs down and so I think, you know, I, repairs, I think, are higher than maybe some of the numbers that you've seen. And they are going to go up, Fred. Our survey shows maybe 500 to to $1,000 per robot per year. And I think ultimately, that might be why people get rid of robots. I think we may see kind of two segments of robot users. You're going to see people that are really good with cows, that can get a lot of milk per cow. They're not really very mechanically inclined. And just like somebody with a car, if you're not very mechanical, you're going to always try to have a pretty new car that's running. Um, I think there's a good market for these used robots, and you'll see maybe younger people without the capital or people that are really mechanically inclined. They're going to say, I want a discounted robot. I'm a little more mechanically inclined and maybe not quite so good with cows. And so I'll buy a used robot and do a lot, a lot of my my own repairs. And as far as resale value, they've been, you know, there's been some farms I've worked with that have purchased used robots. You know, most of them have been two to three years old and they'll pay in the $70,000 range, somewhere between 60 and 80. Now, if they're a lot older model, they'll pay quite a bit less than that. But then of course, you've got to have a robot company come through them and install them. So that's not like your final install cost. You're going to have a quite a bit more than that depending upon the dealer and how much retrofitting that you need to do. So as you look at the, the owners, are you seeing, you mentioned the, the young techie guy, are the ones that are out there now, are you seeing folks most successful when they have that ability to, to figure out the computer and figure out all the wires and whistles? Or is the service good enough from the, the robot company that a good cowman can make them work? I think it depends on where you're located and the brand of robots you have in. I, as I think of the robots we have in Nebraska, we have one brand here in Nebraska. And so if a producer goes to put in another brand, 
that service is definitely going to be lacking because we only have one brand, one service provider for one brand here in the state. But I think if you get to Minnesota and Wisconsin, I think they have more opportunities there to work with those service providers. And from what I've seen and observed and heard, those service providers have done a really good job of training staff that are remote outside of maybe that the main office for that company as well. And so that's been beneficial too, being able to spread out those service technicians. But we have some farms that want to do everything on their own. And that's great. And other farms who aren't as techie. And so they they need those service providers to come out and service and take care of any issues that they have. Yeah, Kim, you're exactly right. As you travel around, like with our research project, you'll see a a lot of a particular brand in a certain area. And then you go maybe a couple hundred miles away and you'll see a lot of maybe a different brand. And that's really all driven by the dealer. Mm -hmm. And it is really important that you have a good dealer support. That's maybe more important than the robot brand per se, because I think especially the major brands, they all do a nice job and they all milk cows and there's good you know, I can find you good farms of every single robot brand. So at least we encourage farms or yeah, we encourage farms that you really need to look at your dealership and your dealer support because you're exactly right, Kim. You really need dealers to support these because they are still a pretty specialized piece of equipment. You know, they're not unusual anymore, but in the whole grand scheme of technology or what we're used to milking cows with, they're pretty new. You know, they've really been about the last 10 years or so is really about how long we've really had dealers that have known how to service these robots. You know, we used to say five, six years ago, we would always tell producers, go out and explore, observe as many robots as you can. Find the one you like, and that's the one you need to go with. And now I think we're starting to change some of our our tune there and encouraging producers Look at the service providers that you have in your area that can help service those robots if something goes wrong. And then those are the robots that you'll consider to put in. We actually have, I know two of our producers have robots. We're looking at completely different brands. They like those brands better, felt they fit the needs better of the producer. They like the operation system. In the end, those dairies ended up putting in the brand's for the service providers that we have here in Nebraska. Yeah, if you have a choice, I think you really got to look at the service providers and also what what I, I just think that's probably more important than the brand because if you don't have a good service provider, it wasn't like in the old days, right? You could put in you could put in a D-Lavelle robot, or I'm sorry, you could put in a D-Lavelle parlor and you could have universal claws and you could have bomatic pulsators and you could have, you could kind of mix and match these parts because, uh, you know, if your local dealer was better in a certain area, but with robots, you're really hooking your horse to that wagon and you're not going to go to brand X and get repairs on robot B, it's just not going to happen. So I think, Kim, what you're saying is really important as people are thinking about these robots that they might be purchasing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I-29 MooU is an equal opportunity provider for the full non-discrimination statement or accommodation inquiries. Go to extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.